From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business intersect and collide. My name is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm joined this week by my friend, nine and a half year co-host, 20 plus year colleague here at the Wharton School, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week here on SiriusXM, the podcast edition, the on-air edition, here on Wharton Moneyball. Sadi, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I don't know what your plan is, but you you got to mention our trip to Yankee Stadium before we get started. I'll get to the trip. To, <laughs> we'll get to the trip to Yankee Stadium, but I want to talk about the Yankees in a, in a different light. But okay. one of the things that I've enjoyed doing when I'm hosting, and it's just me and you, is what I call the rapid fire round, where I kind of act as the host and, you know, kibitzing statistician, but I ask you your opinion on a bunch of different topics. I get your reaction and then I react to it. So why don't we get started? The first topic, I want to go back to our last couple of years about COVID because there was something about COVID that came up recently and I just wanted to get your thoughts and opinion on it. So I read an article in the New York Times that said that they did randomized blood sampling, so randomized testing, that their estimate was that 97% of Americans have some immunity due to COVID. That means either they've gotten COVID, they've gotten vaccinated from COVID, et cetera. Um, but the data is suggesting now that the issue isn't about so much dying from COVID, but that if you had on the x-axis, the number of times getting COVID, and on the y-axis, the probability of long COVID-type symptoms that there's an increasing relationship there. So while you may not die from the third time or fourth time or fifth time you get COVID, your probability of having long COVID symptoms go up. So my question to you is, A, do you believe that? B, how big a concern is it? And C, is that the new frontier? Are we going to be talking about long COVID and things to prevent long COVID as opposed to kind of preventing death from COVID? All right, I'll respond to a couple of things. First of all, the fact that it's 97% seems a little low to me. <laughs> I would suggest <laughs> uh, that it would be higher considering how how unbelievably contagious the last round is and there's more people getting it. I don't even know how you take a random sample of people to start with. I haven't actually read the the, the study. So how do you take a random sample? I mean, what, think about it. Uh, uh, that's the that's that's a funny That's another that's another issue. I agree. You know, and, and, and for those people, you know, when we randomize an experiment, we typically get a set of subjects, and then we randomize into treatment and control, and that's very doable. But to get a, a randomized, a random selection of people from a population, particularly in you know the United States, where we so decentralized, seems just such a such an uh, immensely. By the way, just task. just for the technical term for what Adi's saying is, you typically have the population. Let's even say you say it's all people in the U.S. You'd have a list of people for which to get the sample. That's called the sampling frame, and then mm-hmm. there'd be what's called a sampling frame bias, which is. No matter what list that is, it's probably going to be have some biases against the population more generally. But I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Either way, so keep going. That's the first thing. The second thing uh, has to do with the the uh, the second phase, which I which we are so decentralized and there's such a difficult um, way to get information on on a prevalence of a somewhat rare phenomenon, which is long COVID. So I actually think that's really hard, and I would test. I would I would bet that. Um, that there's massive errors in this, which would be an observational study to start with, hardly experimental. The third thing is I, got, I just had a long conversation with a one of our premier fatigue experts and one of the one of the uh, principal uh, um, uh, um, a symptom of long COVID is fatigue. Yep. His his re- remark is essentially there's been absolutely no evidence to suggest that there is a that viruses do have a certain fraction of people who get viruses do get fatigue and all kinds of sort of are lingering symptoms. And he essentially said that their long COVID does, doesn't appear to be any different than the historical set of long viral syndromes that people have had. There's nothing particular unique about that. What we really had was just a massive number of people getting infected at the same time, which means that you get this, you'll see this bulges. Uh, bulges. Also, it seems to be highly correlated with mental health con- concerns. And these are, hmm. and, and that therefore, uh, to be blunt about it, 
I don't think that long COVID should be a concern. I think this is a New York Times, uh, you know, stoking its readership for whatever reasons. Um, and uh, and I don't. I'd, I'd like to see the actual study itself. And historically, these have been so hard. They've looked at. There have been great studies done by looking at people who have had COVID verifiably and looked as at, you said. At there's a, there's all kinds of measurement error problems. There's oh, all it's, kinds it's, of issues. It's, it's, it's one of the problems with these syndromes is they're very hard to define. Right. So um, who, what is what and 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 so we do know that loss of taste and smell was an absolute long sure. COVID symptom. In fact, I have a close friend who still can't smell anything. I feel oh, so. He says true. he says a really bad baby diaper he can get, he can get away. There we go. <laughs> but that's anyway, about I wanted it. to spend I wanted to spend a few minutes while it was just me and you talking about COVID. And it'll be interesting to see um, for countries, as you pointed out, that have better data on COVID, what we actually find out there. Um, I wanted to talk about the next topic. It's not that the next topic is not so much that you're a golf guy, but I wanted to get your assessment of a statistical problem but relates to golf. So just so you know, Adi, um, this last weekend, they had the season ending tour championship. The way it works in golf now is there's three weeks that end the season where the first week it's 70 players make it the top 70 based on points that you accumulate throughout the season. And then from there you accumulate points in this tournament. And then the top 50 make it to the next to the last week. And then the top 30 make it to what's called the tour championship. And Victor Hovland, uh, who's from Norway, um, he won the next to the last tournament, which is called the BMW Championship. He then went into the Tour Championship as I think it was the number three seed. And the, where you guys may remember, our listeners on Wharton Moneyball will remember, the top, this is a strange format. The top player who was Scotty Scheffler starts at minus 10. The next player starts at like minus eight, then minus six. So he started, unlike a regular tournament where you all start at the same even par, he started four strokes behind the leader, but actually ended up winning by five strokes. There was 11 strokes between him and third place. So he won in an overwhelming fashion, but it made me more think about something we've talked about many times, this idea of streakiness. I'm not right. saying momentum, but streakiness. Well, so the question to you as a statistician is, I can think of a lot of ways to measure streakiness. It could be using you fit a model without it and look at residuals. I can imagine looking at simple things like conditional probabilities, given you one last week, what's the probability this week, or even the distribution of performance. I can imagine doing what we do in marketing, which is you fit like a, a model with an outcome and fit what's called a state dependence parameter. Given what happened last time, is there an increase in probability winning this time? I can imagine lots of ways. How do you as a statistician think about measuring streakiness? Do you think it exists? Do you think we just have low power? It exists, but it's actually hard to find. How do you think about it? Oh, yeah. So all of these things are real concerns. So so problem, of course, is just post hoc now. So we've we've observed someone who is streaky and now we want to measure whether it's excessively streaky according to some sort of IID model. But of course, how did we come upon this person? Because we look through many, many observations and then we 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 run into this one. So that has a cherry picking or a or post hoc selection concern. And so once we start to collect, correct for that and recognize we looked at maybe a thousand golfers or whatever the, the, the number is, and all of a sudden that you, you're looking at the maximum streakiness uh, among a lot of golfers. So just to be clear, then one of the things you might suggest doing, which I do in one of the papers I wrote with one of your former, well, our former doc students at Wharton, but in the stat department, Yao Jiang, was you could compute what's called the null distribution of streakiness, which is under an IID model where there is no streakiness and independent uh, draws across weeks. You could simulate the data, look at the distribution of streaks, and compare this observed streakiness to the maximum or some other characteristic of the streakiness distribution. And that might be one way to do it. But I don't That's know what exactly. you want. Yeah. That's exactly – that would be my first guess. Like I have to come up with some sort of metric of streakiness – Figure out its null distribution um, and try to model that as best as possible. Remember, you have to have your golfers of different strengths and you have courses of different um, uh, uh, of different co uh, qualities so that, you know, certain players probably play well in certain kinds of courses. And, and that that introduces already a correlation structure, which means that whatever metric of streakiness you're looking for might be uh, more pronounced because the IID model um, isn't right. Even if there's no that model's not right, idea. you're basically right. attacking that model. That model's yeah, so just not right for it's, golf. It's not right for golf. So 
it's it's tough, but I do like that as a as a fundamental premise. And so what you're looking at is there are some sort of exceedances um, that are beyond what you'd expect under even a low correlated I or not quite IID, but low correlated model. It should be doable. Um, but you actually conflated two kinds of concerns, I think. One, which is the momentum issue, which is the, the hotness, that the idea that if I've won once, it's going to make me more likely to win the next time. In other words, and that's often related to a psycho psychological phenomenon. If, if I'm feeling good, I'm going to play good, right? And if I if I just experience disappointment, I'm going to play worse, as opposed to what we would call a non-stationarity, which is um, I'm actually playing well. My my stroke is good now. It's not that uh, it's like a hidden Markov model. I'm in the hot state, not the cold state. It, right, and so as opposed to um, what Tversky and Hahnemann looked at years ago, which is a hot hand, you're looking at a non-stationarity. So a hotness, you you can you can imagine it in, um, appearing in the context of a, a round of golf, a tournament, uh, streakiness or, or non-stationarity is is something over a month of play. Right, it's a different it's a different level, and I think we would be more. I'm more inclined to believe in in non-stationarity uh, as the streakiness is not coming from momentum, but it's coming from you got your, you got everything in line right now. You're well rested. You're physically strong. You're you're everything is 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 running on all four cylinders plus right. And and that and that I think we see in sports. I don't. I'm I'm much less. I'm much more suspicious about the idea that the psychological defeats and victories are really going to um, help you do well. I mean, and, and, and we, we tend to think that the, those things are real because it appears they are, right? You know, you know, one of our uh, disappointing players in the Yankees is Stanton. And when that guy's hot, hot, there I go. It seems like everything he hits goes out, right? In the is hot that, state. He's got the hot state and the cold state. Yeah, and, and it seems like a better way to define it. I, I, you know, there's there have been people who argue that a manager could really uh, use that. You know, your your posterior estimate on the hotness state is something to 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 take into account. Maybe not so much in baseball where people play every day, but but maybe in basketball or certainly a golf betters would would want to bet on it. You know, use that information if it was valuable, and they might be doing it. But what a what a elegant and tough question um, that's of almost never ending um, interest. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, even just the work I did with our former doctoral student, the first thing we had to do was what's the metric of streakiness that we're going to do? And so we had to, we had one paper where we first created that measure, and then we actually applied it. So what are the properties of the measure, and how would you construct a measure of streakiness? And I'll throw another thing is there's a there's a in statistics now we have multiple comparisons and and corrections for mul uh, large numbers of observations and maximums versus averages, but we also have a sneaky thing called data bleed. Uh, what do I mean by data bleed? Um, it, it, so often we we want to put in a model uh, a, a measure of an individual player's sort of talent level or performance, and sometimes we estimate that over the entirety of the data set, and then we like use that estimate um, backwards into things that we're measuring along the way. And you think, oh, it's no big deal, but um, in, in other words, what I mean by data bleed is 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 you're trying to do something that's forecasting, but then you use something that uses the thing you're predicting in some very small way, but actually does matter. And, and, uh, and it actually kind of, it can invalidate a study, particularly when you're looking at effect sizes that are pretty small in the mm. end of the day. Very interesting. Well, yeah. since you mentioned our game, our trip to the Yankee game, um, obviously, just so for our fans know, last week uh, on Wednesday, Adi and I with our wives went to the Yankee game. Uh, it was a Glorious Yankees win with Aaron Judge hitting three home runs. But I wanted to ask you something about the Yankees. So I just looked, obviously, in preparation for today's show, knowing it would be me and you. The Yankees were predicted, everyone, you know, everyone had different numbers, but the Yankees were predicted for 96 wins preseason. Now, they might end up 20 wins below that. So I was trying to get, here's the question that I wrote, and you can answer it any way you want, but I might as well read you what I wrote. How could we norm prediction errors from the preseason like is minus 20 really bad yes like, okay <laughs> so so how would one just like i asked you about measuring streakiness how would you think about measuring what a bad prediction error is in this case all right well i'll tell you what, i know the rmse of predicting let's be clear for everybody that's the residual mean squared error which means just to be clear to everybody let's say the forecast was, let's say the average is 81 wins for somebody, and you predict 75 wins. The error is six. You square that, so now you get 36. You add that up for all the teams, 
and then or all the observations you're going to use, and then you take the square root of that. So that's why it's the residual mean, the average, the mean squared error. It's the average of the squared errors, and then you take the square root of that. So I mean, in more common parlance, it's the standard deviation of the errors. Yeah, the so, standard deviation of the errors. Right. So you're basically saying uh, the rule of thumb for standard of errors is a plus or minus. So if I took this, the if I know the RMSE, the standard the standard deviation of the errors, any prediction is uh, approximately two thirds of the time within one RMSE of the predicted value. The actual value is most of the time within one. And do you RMSE. know what it is for preseason predictions? Well, I I, I can tell I, I know not, but I'll tell you what it is if you tried to predict with payroll and payroll only because i just did this example with my class okay 11 so the rmc is 11 if you predict only with payroll if you're trying the forecast for the yankees is not only payroll it's historic it's 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 the historical performance it's everything goes into it you must be able to crush that um in terms of rmse crush that definitely down to i would say seven Okay, so you're saying this is a like a three sigma, uh, two and a half yes. to three sigma, two and a half to three sigma kind of event. I wouldn't put hesitate. I would three is always too far. Um, you know, that's just three standard deviations of three are just ridiculously rare. But mm-hmm. I think comfortably a two and a quarter uh, standard deviation event here, two and a quarter, even two and a half, one and a, one and a hundred. I mean, shocker. Listen, Yankees haven't haven't lost, uh, haven't had a losing record. In, and that's what you have to have to be 20, 20 games lower than 96. Than, yeah. They haven't had a lose-lose record in over 30 years. And they've had great success the previous few years. And the, and the lineup hasn't changed that much. It's aged, right? But it hasn't changed that much. They, they, they got Rodon. I mean, the bottom line is I think this is a shocker. Um, it really is a shock. Now the season is no yet. They could end up with 85 and then we'd be looking at each other. Uh, but win, 85. But... I'll take the under 85. Yeah, you know, that's ridiculous. Have eight games over 500 when they're four below now with 30 something to play. That would be impressive. Yeah, you know, but they, I think they still are a talented team. I mean, we can discuss. I mean, I, I've been watching some of the Yankee games. And, and and I, I had an idea I'd love to share with you. One of the things that Boone does is he is I think he pulls the starters very early. We've talked and, about this. Yep. And and he, and he also brings in um, relievers serially and and you know one inning at a time pr- practically, which means that Yankee games often will feature five six pitchers um, maybe and that's a lot. And here's a try. I'm going to try this model out on you for size. What if you have a, a reliever core that are v- generally very good relievers? And what I mean by really really good is that four out of five times they're excellent, and you can expect one to two innings of of just lights out baseball. And you often see that with Yankee relievers, but one out of five times they're just they're they're just off and they just get pummeled. So, and when they do get pummeled, they don't tend to last long because you pull them out after one or two or three batters quickly. And when they are good, they will bat they will might pitch one to two or even more innings. So if you actually look at their ERA, it's pretty good. They're really good two to three ERA pitchers. Now, if you're a manager who who serially um, brings in too many relievers then what you do is you end right, up you increase the probability that at least one of them is going to have a bad that's outcome. right instead you know and then and then you're actually asking for it's a dumb strategy and instead right. what you should be doing is letting the if you see a guy come in and he's got his this is table, it this is what i've always wondered and, yeah, you and, get and the I, first like you put you, you pitch the first three batters you're like well this is absolutely i'll be up tommy canley's right. on he's this is his 80 percent mode not the 20 percent mode let's have him pitch a second inning exactly like, well we don't know what would happen well i know it's the hot state versus the cold state and that effect size is much larger than the fatigue effect that might come from a second inning so what this is is a very simple model very for simple performance that shows that boone's strategy is just ass backwards and he shouldn't be using it now he could be argued so you could say that my model's bad and that his model is uh, that his strategy fits a different model but i like my model and i and maybe i like it post hoc after i've i completely but- agree with you i've always wondered why in some sense managers don't recognize that it's a bimodal distribution one mode is obviously much bigger than the other but that once you observe a couple of batters you have a pretty good sense of which mode on that given day you're drawing from. Now, your point about the bad model is your your model might have something like it's this game or that game, not this batter or that batter. Like there's not a lot of intra-game variation. It's yeah, inter-game right. variation. Someone could complain about that. But again, 
I, I'm totally with you. I've never, never understood that. Well, let's move on in my list here. Um, we actually, I, I had something on tennis, but since we're in the second half of our show today, we're going to be talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, from Brain Game Tennis. Um, I'm going to skip that one. I left something intentionally blank on our uh, rundown, and I want to read it to you, and I want to get your answer. So, as you know, college football, Georgia's the two-time defending champion. I think you know that. Oh, yeah. I think you also know that they're ranked number one in the preseason. Oh, yeah. You know that. I know that. Since 2000, so 23 seasons, how many times do you think, I know the answer, but I left it blank for you. How many times do you think the number one team in the preseason won the national title? So how many out of 23 did the number one team win the national title? I would say approximately 25% of the time. So five or six. Right. I do. Right. The answer is two. Two. Right. 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 So now my question to you is that was surprising to me, too. So now my question to you is let's be statisticians. What's an explanation for that? Is it that I'll give some, but I'd love your thoughts. One is we put so much weight in number one versus number four. It's really a flat maximum near the top. That's one possibility. Um, we underestimate the variability. Like even when one plays eight, there's still some probability that eight's going to beat one. Um, three, we're really bad at preseason rankings. They're just mm-hmm. not very good. So that's another possibility. But you, as well as I do, I assume I thought the answer would be about 25%. I was guessing between five to seven, same as you, and the answer is two. So first of all, what do you think the cause might be? And second, does this change your belief on Georgia's ability to 3 P? Okay, so I do think that our ability to rank is bad. That preseason rankings are just bad. I think these are college students. Uh, they are. We don't have that much information. The teams turn over a lot, and um, uh, and so that may be that the explanation. Um, yes, it does affect my my only in the sense that my my prior probability based on historical data, which is always a good thing to fall back on, of the preseason favorite winning would be about one in 10, right? If you, uh, with two out of 23 in that neighborhood. And okay, by the way, does this put any weight? You know, I always love asking these questions. The fact that no one's three-peated since the 1930s, do you put any weight in that at all? No, at all? I don't. I knew your answer would be no. I knew that's, that. the two, that's the two bombs on the plane joke, right? There. <laughs> I knew you were going to say no to that one. So that's not worth uh, it. No, I don't. That I don't. But I, I, but I, obviously, I think the fact that they have two-peated uh, means that they are definitely in a rarely good, a rare, in the rarefier of great teams. So I would probably not go with one in 10, certainly. I don't know what the preseason's odds are, folk, um, but I would probably say their chance of winning is probably close to that, closer to the 25 to 40 percent, um, not the one in 10. I think that they're a uniquely powerful team. They're great recruiting. They, you know, they, everything's together. They probably have a lot of returning players. I, these are information I, of course, don't have it at, at my fingertips. Um, but I'd be curious to know what the preseason odds are on them. But I would probably guess they're probably plus 200 in that name, in that range, plus 250, if I had to guess. Um, oh, you're not even close. It's plus 230. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> totally off. You're totally miscalibrated as a, as a sports analyst here. Wow, I'm I'm happy with that call. And I, and for our listeners, I am not looking. Yeah, maybe you have to obviously have to trust me. But I'm I, looking now. I'm looking. I'm just saying it's plus two thirty. But yeah. let's be clear. That's basically, as everyone should know, that's basically a hundred over three thirty. So yeah. that's somewhere around thirty percent, right? I mean, yeah, that's exactly. that's so you're you're pretty well calibrated on that. Yeah. I just thought this was interesting. So let let's go to the next one. Maybe in the last uh, three minutes we have here. It's not that you and I are big soccer fans, but I've always wondered this. So. Lionel Messi has come to the MLS and has played, I mean, maybe one of the best players MLS has ever had. So I was just going to ask you as a statistical question, there's two possibilities. One is MLS is no good and Messi's just better than all of them. Or the other possibility is Messi's just really, 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 really good and MLS is fine. How would you kind of, is it ever possible to disentangle this or what I call the shift identification problem, which is, let's say Messi's good and the league is bad. But if I just add a constant to both, Messi's really good and the league is good, but he's still that differentially better. So both of those lead to the same potential outcomes. How do you think about that in the last two minutes we have? 
Yeah, that's a tricky one because um, it's not just Messi. I, apparently, Miami also picked up a couple other really good. They players. did, from, and um, from teammate, former teammates of his, former teammates, and that's part of the story. And and listen, they are the eleventh ranked league in the world. Maybe that's certainly not you know NBA level. Um, and but I don't even I don't have a really feeling for how rapidly it goes down. But this, the the data that I have seen, and I've had some students do some rankings of uh, uh, predictions of when players move from one to the other. I really think there's a very big gap, even after the top two or th- three or four leagues in the world, it goes down substantially. So I think there is a very big gap between um, La Liga's and the Premier Leagues and the and, uh, and then the the MLS. I, I do think Messi, yeah, possibly the greatest player ever lived, but he's 36 years old. I mean, it's not. That's the thing when you talk about Pele came to the to the Cosmos. Remember of New Jersey? I remember in 1980. He was at the end of his career. I mean, that's typically when the when when the Americans get the the, the former stars is that they they are at the end. But Messi seems to be great, still really great, despite the fact that he's being 36 years old. Um, and that may be the Djokovic effect, right? It's like we're seeing this all over. The Tom Brady, the, there, there seems to be a longevity in, in careers that we didn't use to get historically. Um, and that might be the, the missing piece is that, yeah, the MLS is good and Messi's great, but he's the greatest we've ever seen at this age. Yeah, I think, I think what you're pointing out in just our last few seconds is an important point, is that we're starting to see this in every sport and even in sports we wouldn't think it was possible. And so I think we have to eventually get to the point where, as you said, increased training, increased use of analytics to improve performance, that we're going to see this in more and more sports. And I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, as you said, it's not so much that Messi's great. It's just that he's great at age 36. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, We have Craig O'Shaughnessy from Brain Game Tennis uh, joining us in the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics intersect. Uh, Adi, I've always said that one of our best parts about Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM for the last nine-plus years is that we get to interview people that are actually applying analytics to the sports that we love. And as you guys all know, no one loves tennis more than I do. And so we're happy to have back Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world's leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Um, he created Brain Game Tennis. For those interested, you can go to braingametennis.com. Uh, Craig has also held various coaching roles, including spending time with Team Djokovic, which we'll want to talk to him about. But, Craig, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys again. It's that time of year. It's that time. It's absolutely that time of year. So why don't we just start with an overview of, you know, we've talked to you every year, I think the last four or five years. Where is the state of analytics in tennis today more broadly? We'll get to individual players, how they're doing, how they might be using it. But let's talk about just how analytical are the teams that are surrounding players? Where is the state of analytics today? Yeah, it's definitely improving. There's a lot of teams that are now looking at data to get information about the opponents. I think that that's where it's going down that road a little bit more than looking at themselves, which which also needs to happen. But um, it, it's very rare these days that a player is going to go into a match and not understand the serve tendencies, the, the patterns uh, early in the point about their opponent. There's only one guy that I've ever sat down with. It was Nikolai Davidenko. You may remember him. I do. A, a Russian player who was unbelievable. But I remember having lunch with him once, and, and I I started to talk to him like, well, I do analytics and statistics and strategy, and I was you know kind of happy with myself. And, uh, and, and Nikolai goes, yeah, well, I, I don't even want to know who I play. And I don't want to know what they do. I'm just going to go out there and play my game. And I sat, my jaw hit the floor. And I sat there and, and, and had a wonderful conversation with him. But he's literally been the only guy in two decades that, that I've spoken to that does it that way. Everybody else now, um, you're searching for the information. You, you leave no stone unturned. You want to know where the forehand and the backhand breaks down. You want to know which sides were attacked. Uh, you want to know the favorite passing shot and, and, and all of these things. So that information is spilling into our sport more now than it ever has. So I would say that the state of analytics currently 
is is very much focused on opponent analysis. Well, that's what I was. So let me. That was a per, this is one of those perfect softball segues to my follow up <laughs> question, which is. If you had to say, you know, I always let, I'm always known on here on Morton Moneyball. This is I'm Eric Bradlow's the effect size guy, which means if given everyone's only gotten a certain amount of time in the day, if you were coaching mm-hmm. a player today, would you have her or him focus more on, let's call it their own analytics or their analytics of their opponent? And which do you think of the two is actually more impactful in terms of increasing the odds of winning? I'll tell you a quick story. When I first started working with Novak Djokovic in 2017, uh, we met at the Australian Open to kick off. We sat down. Murray Invita, his, his full-time coach, his long-time coach, was yep. there. Novak was sitting there. And, you know, I'm as nervous as hell to, for the first time chatting with these guys and a little bit of small talk, how's the kids, yada, yada. And then, you know, I said, Novak, how can I best help you? And he goes, Craig, there's three ways. And he goes, the first thing is, and he's, he's number two in the world at the time. Um, it's, it's spent, it already won 11 slams. It's spent a long, a long time at number one, but he was two, ranked two then. And the first thing he said to me was that I want you to analyze my game. I know there's things that I'm doing out there on the court that I could do better. I know there's patterns that I think are right, but they probably aren't. So the first thing is figure me out, understand what I'm doing wrong and right, and let's improve me first. So that kind of goes to answer your question. Secondly, um, was certainly he said, I want to have a game plan for every match that I play. I want to know about the opponent. Sometimes I'm playing somebody for the first time. Sometimes I haven't played that person in a while. Sometimes that person has jumped in the rankings and they're playing differently. So I want that information about the opponents. And then the third thing was, there's these other two guys that, are, that regularly turn up against me on a Sunday and we need to know more about them than they know about us. But it was interesting to know that the first thing that Novak wanted was more information about himself. So I think that kind of answers the question right there. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, besides the, let's call it on-court part of analytics, one could easily imagine a situation where one uses analytics for something you care deeply about, which is training. Could you talk about all the ways, if there are any, that analytics is used prior to someone stepping on the court? Because we've talked about this all the time. I mean, Adi's done work on sleep patterns. There's work on tra- on diet. There's work on you know training regimen. You know, I'll call it time off, time on. Could you talk about all the off-court stuff where analytics may be able to support a player? The old way, uh, the old relationship between the practice court and the match court started with the practice court. You would go there, you would hit balls, you would stand on the baseline, you know, you'd hit for an hour across court, you'd hit 700 forehands, and you thought you were getting better. Then you go to the match court and you hope what you worked on um, sticks and you hope that it helps you win matches. Now we go to the match court first. We look at the analytics, we see where we're strong, we see where we're weak. And essentially, a tennis match, you know, kind of looks random. It looks like a game of pinball with the the ball careening around. Sometimes, you know, players go down the line. Sometimes they go across. All of a sudden, they pop up at the net. It's not. It's a game of repeatable patterns. And those patterns are short. About 70% of all points from zero through four. So what what is now happening on the practice court is that you are looking for short sequences of shots, uh, repeatable patterns, such as a serve out wide in the juice court, followed up by a forehand approach to the wide open ad court. And what you're wanting to do on the practice court now is take these little derivatives of the match, these little shot sequences of two, three, and four shots, and you take those to the practice court and you practice them religiously. So you're actually getting better at the patterns instead of just going to the practice court and banging balls around for an hour. I, I love it because I've always wondered that as well. And, and you just reinforced that, Craig, which is, you know, even if you're playing Novak Djokovic, what I would many would consider the greatest returner of all time. I mean, there's other people you could put in that set, but he's in everybody's top five. If conceptually you could hit a 
five inch square on the outside edge on the on the deuce on the ad court, serve him yeah. out wide, and then follow up with a forehand to the open court. I'm not saying you're beating Djokovic, but if you could do that every single time, you'd at least have a chance. So I love this idea of you mentioned half a dozen, but like have a half a dozen, two or three shot patterns, get really good at those, and doesn't your game just have to improve? Well, it does. And and the key here is that you're planning. You have an idea of how the point wants to go. And I've worked a lot with juniors about this. Typically, a junior is going to go up to the line and not really, you know, maybe they think about where the serve's going, but not really where they want the ball to come back. Not really thinking about, does my serve plus one need to be a forehand or a backhand? Where do I need to attack? So I, I experimented a lot about a decade ago, standing on the court behind these juniors, asking them, how do you want this point of point to play out? Where do you want to be um, at the start of the point? And, and what shot do you want to have at the end? And it's amazing how often the point will play out how it's planned. And even if it doesn't play out exactly, the chance of you winning the point rises simply because you have a plan in your mind. Hmm. Let me ask you now about the state of the game of tennis right now. Let me first start with what I call, I'll call it uh, in a good way, the more complicated side, which is the women's tennis today. I see at least, maybe you've got a different number. I see at least half a dozen people that are probably competitive in most majors today. I mean, in my view, obviously, Iga Swantek, who's the number one player in the world, Sabalenka, Rubikina, You'd have to put Coco Goff in that set right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I don't know. Maybe you'd have to put. I mean, it wouldn't be surprised to me. I mean, Muchova could certainly win a major. Andrzejewska yeah. could possibly win a major. Vondrusova just won a major. I mean, yes. it, you know, if she got on a run, Sakari, not in this tournament. She's already out. But Sakari or Madison Keys. So I mean, mm-hmm. let's talk about the women's side. Why do you think there's so much? I don't want to call it parity because Swiatek. I mean, mm-hmm. there's two or three that appear to be better than the rest or have done better. But why are there so many competitive women in the game today? Everything goes in cycles and waves. And, you know, we see it in the men's game. We see it in the women's game. Um, you know, you basically mentioned most of the girls in the top 10. Jabur is there. Rebakin is also there. Um, Pagul is at three. So I think it's a very exciting time. I look at this top 10 and think, okay, Sviatek is certainly a cut above. There is, there is no question she's on a floor in the building that's at the top. She's in the penthouse. There's nobody else up there. But not by far. Sabalenka on a day can can take her out. And a lot of these other players in the top 10, I think it's a, a really good time uh, for women's tennis. And I like the game styles. I like the players that are there. Uh, you mentioned Machova. I watched her at uh, in Rome this year where she had a, a gutsy three-set victory over Trevor Sam. Um, I was on court Peter and Gali. I, was, I worked with the Italian Federation, so I was sitting front and center, and I was, I was just watching Machova. I'm like, you can play. You've got a really good head on your shoulders. You're yep. mixing and serving volley. Um, you, your forehand's got great shape. Your backhand's solid as a rock. You will go to the net as, as, as much as you need to. Um, you know, they're very much an all-court player. So if she's sitting around 10 in the world at the moment, um, that, that speaks to a very healthy women's game. So I, I think the women have nothing – um, nothing but an upside at the moment. And, and the players that are there and the personalities that, that are there, I really, really like. So I think the WTA is in a very good position right now. I, I agree. And by the way, I love watching the women's game. Maybe I could argue in some ways, although that uh, we'll get to the men's side in a second, that Djokovic-Alcarez match, I think it was in Cincinnati, was one of the yes. great matches I've ever seen. So we'll, I want to get to that in a second. But so as you project out as someone that knows the game of tennis better than anybody, I always say, you let's forget about the intercept in a, mat, in a model, which is where people are today. As you project out two to three years from now, who has the greatest ability to improve? And how do you think and determine that? Like, who's not even yet, in your view, Swantec is great. There are, these are all great players in the top 10. But who's got another, I'll use your terms, uh, Craig, who's got another level in the high-rise building that they can get to? I think Coco Goff. I, I think sometimes, you know, the serve can get a little wild, the forehand can get a little wild, the backhand generally solid. Um, but I think she can tighten things up. Um, I remember, you know, I always go back to this. I, I was studying Andre Agassi in 2000 at the Australian Open. He beats 
Evgeny Kafelnikov in four sets in the final. They interview him, and they're talking about why why Andre did so well. And they put a point on, and he's like, yeah, Evgeny moves really well around the court. He likes the ball up high. Um, he only pulls the trigger one time in the point. And, uh, you know, that really resonated with me. So, you know, what um, – I, I just actually had a, a chat with Ben Shelton's dad, who's now coaching him. Uh, mm-hmm. I watched Ben at, uh, at Wimbledon. I watched him um, – uh, I watched him here at the U.S. Open. And that's what I told him. I said, Ben – it just needs to go one point deeper in the rally, not pull the trigger quite as much. Take that quote from Andre Agassi and say, is this the really the right ball to go for? No, not yet. And and just go one more shot at one more shot deeper into the rally. And and that's really probably the number one thing that Ben Shelton needs. And circling back to the women, it's the one more thing that Coco Goff needs as well. Just finding the right ball to pull the trigger. It's almost like being in a poker game. It's like, okay, I've got my two aces. Now I can do whatever I want. But until you have that, just just go deep with one more ball. Go behind with one more ball. Hit one more ball with better core position. And don't make that error. Don't be in a rush to make that error. And all of a sudden, your game will blossom. And opponents, opponents are now going to be pressing too hard and making that error instead of you. Just two quick comments on that, uh, Craig. And again, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world's leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis. Uh, for those that want to learn more, uh, you can go to braingametennis.com. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. Uh, some combination of us, uh, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. It's interesting, just two comments on that. You obviously picked Andre Agassi. Now, obviously, um, Brad Gilbert played a big role in Andre Agassi's career, and he's now recently joined the Coco Golf team. So my first comment and question to you is, how much role does an instructor like a Brad Gilbert have on the potential of a player like Coco Goff? Yeah, I think it's a brilliant move. Brad's got so much experience from coaching Andre and from coaching you know, other players as well. He spent some time with Andy Murray, spent some time with uh, Andy Roddick and, and other players as well. So what Brad's going to do is he's going to very much talk about the patterns of play. He's going to talk about the strategy. He's going to talk about the mind. It's not about, you know, the practice court as much. It's about analyzing matches and analyzing matchup, matchups. Brad was a master at figuring out the opponent and plugging in that game style. And, you know, trying to play Andre Agassi back in the day, you know, around 2000, you know, when he was, when he was at the heights of his game, it was so difficult. I actually formed one of my early presentations where he beat Scott Draper in the final of Washington by playing cross-court in the, in the juice court to Scott's backhand. Scott was a lefty. Then the round of 16 at the Australian Open in 2000 against Philippusis by going through the ad court now to the backhand and then beating Kafelnikov in that final going side to side. So Andre had the unique ability to be a chameleon on the court and adapt his strengths to the yep. opponent's weaknesses. And there is no doubt he's going to bring uh, that type of, of understanding of the game uh, to Coco, and I think it's a brilliant move. Yeah, actually, and your comment, by the way, about in some sense the one more ball, um, it's totally on a totally different level of, of sport, but it was one of the greatest coaches in squash, who was my son's coach, my middle son's mm-hmm. coach, said the exact same comment that you said to him one time. He said, you're always going to get another opportunity in a rally to hit a winning shot. You make mm-hmm. too many errors to force it on this opportunity. You're going to mm-hmm. get another one. So it reminded me of when you were saying that, Craig, like there will be like it doesn't have to be one and done. Like there will be a second yeah. opportunity, a third opportunity, but not, of course, if you hit the ball out of bounds, not if you hit the ball into the net. And so that, that kind of that comment resonated with me as well. Excellent. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. Well, let's go on to the men's side. So I don't even know what to say about that Alcaraz uh, Djokovic match, except to say, um, first, can you explain just the mental and physical side? I mean, I thought Djokovic was going to have to retire in that match. So what enabled him to turn that match around both physically and mentally? And second, um, how close do you see the two of them? And are they in a, I'll use your language again, Craig, a floor by themselves? Yeah, they certainly are at the moment. They they reside together in the penthouse. They look over to the other building, and Iga's 
in the penthouse all on her own on the other side. But those two are almost dead equal with their abilities. Novak is still playing amazing tennis. Um, he, he's winning at, a, at the same rate or possibly even better than some of the best years of his career. Um, he's being pushed now. And, and part of that, you can give credit to Carlos for pushing him and being around to stimulate him to continue to improve. So those two guys are, are absolutely amazing and and on the floor um, of their own. In that match, Novak, Novak hasn't been in that heat for a while. He hasn't been over to the States um, in a couple of years because of his stance with COVID. He hasn't felt that heat on a hard court. And it was actually very early in the match, in the first few games, that you could see that the heat was affecting him. Yep. So, so he, you know, he hung around. He did the right thing. He called to the team to get, you know, the, the liquids and the salts and, and the electrolytes. Um, he had the trainer come out and give him extra. And he just hung around. And when you look to the other side of the court, Carlos didn't know how to handle that. He started making return error after return error. He made 38 return errors in that match. Um, Novak only made 18. And that really kept points short, which helped Novak. Um, and and it kept him in the match. And so all of a sudden, yes, he fell behind a set and a break. But Carlos's game fell apart because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to run him. He didn't know whether he should drop shot. Yep. Um, and, and the errors started flowing. It was a little bit like, you know, in, in the uh, Roland Garros semifinal where he didn't know how to handle that situation. And you go back another year, I think, to Toronto where he played Tommy Paul and lost where Alcaraz was four in the world. He goes, I didn't know how to handle being four in the world. So this is one of those things where quite probably Carlos learns from this and it doesn't happen again, but he just hadn't been in that situation before. And then he, he ends up with a, um, with a match point, can't convert, sits down, absolutely frustrated, punches the daylights out of the seat next to him. I know it hurts his hand. I hurt his hand. I haven't seen him do that. So that just kind of shows you, um, you know, how frustrated he was for not closing that match out and how kind of – we haven't seen it a lot with him, but winning kind of became the forefront thing in front of his eyes instead of the strategy. And that, you know, we all go back to that, juniors especially, but but that affected him there. And um, and Novak gained strength from that, that, that he wasn't being put away by – by his opponent, Novak hung around and hung around and his experience got him over the line there. So it was a fantastic match. And I think because of that, I'm going to in- install Novak as the favourite here at um, at the US Open ahead of Carlos simply because of of the confidence that, uh, that Novak took away from coming back from the dead to win that match. Well, I, so I was going to ask you about that and, and related to that. So you've written recently that there's a, I don't know, maybe it's the strategy part you're talking about, the inexperienced part about Alcaraz having some sort of hole in his game. Wh- what do you think that hole is in Alcaraz's game? Um, I, I, I do analysis of all of his matches. I, I create an 11-page match intelligence report. It's got a lot of different analytics than, than you're getting regularly from the tournament, a lot of on the zero through four rallying length. Um, and then obviously five to eight or nine plus. You look at that, but but very heavy on serve plus one return plus one and rally rings. And the hole in his game is on the return side. So I looked at um, nine nine uh, tournaments that he played this year that he either went very deep semifinals or won uh, tournaments such as Wimbledon and Roland Garros and Cincinnati. Also put in there Toronto, but you also go back to Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, and Barcelona. Um, the return side of the equation, in specifically returns made and returns won, at, at Toronto and Cincinnati, they were the lowest out of those nine. So Carlos is serving just fine. Everything's going well there. The rallying hasn't dropped off, but the return side's dropped off. And I looked at his return position against Novak, and especially on second serves, he's either way back, kind of like a Medvedev, or he's way in, almost doing like a sabre that Roger Federer, um, you know, put together by half volume and coming in. And I think that that massive discrepancy of being either 10 feet inside the baseline or almost 20 feet behind it is really messing up his timing and his confidence and his strategy uh, with the return of serve, particularly on the forehand side. The more he moves back, the more the ball dies, the slower it gets, and Carlos is kind of just cuffing up the back of that ball and making 
way too many return errors that are shanked off the bottom of his racket and sent long and sent wide and, and, and not clean. When he's kind of standing in the one spot, he's got the same routine. He's hitting through the ball. He's an unbelievably clean hitter of the ball, but he's not doing it on the return of serve because of these drastic changes in his return position. So that's the hole in his game. Hopefully you read the uh, article too. I haven't seen Juan Carlos Ferrero uh, here to pass it on to him, but um, as soon as he sorts that out, I think I think he'll 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 he can clean that up very very quickly. But at the moment, Toronto and Cincinnati have been a nightmare for him in those two areas. So I know we only have you for about two more minutes. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. The first question I want to ask you is: You've already made your prediction that you make uh, Djokovic a slight favorite on the men's side. We always like to ask this question, but I think it's obvious what your answer is going to be. In this case, if I give you Djokovic and Alcaraz and you give me the field, you would be happy with that. Um, what odds would I have to get for it to be a fair bet? Like, are you a two-to-one favorite over to me, three-to-one? Like, how much probability do you put in Djokovic and Alcaraz winning or Alcaraz winning? Is it 75%, 80%? Where do you think you put it? Uh, higher. I'd put it higher. higher. Um, I would go almost to 90% on those two guys. If you give me those two guys, I would feel unbelievably comfortable uh, by giving you the field. So, yeah, maybe five five to one, e- even higher. But I, I would say, you know, looking at it the other way, I would say, uh, you know, uh, 90% plus um, that, that that match is over. I would I would actually book a, book a uh, flight this afternoon, New York to the Bahamas, um, settle in down there by the pool and watch the rest of the tournament by the pool and, and already start counting my money. Um, and, 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 and hopefully I cash it in in the following Sunday because I, I'd be pretty confident with that bet. Yeah, you got it. We have to obviously have to hope injuries don't happen or something else Very like true. that. Very Maybe true. just in the last 30 seconds we have you, sure. uh, Craig. Um, how do you see the women's side? Who, who's your prediction there? Listen, I think Iga goes in. I, I you know I like how she's hitting the ball. She... She won her first round here very, very easily. Things are th- things are humming for her at the moment. Sabalenka could derail her with her with her speed. Pagula could derail her with her consistency. Rebakina could derail her with her first shot attacking. Jabur could derail her with the variety. Goff could also, you know, bring that hometown flavor, that that American flavor. Um, but but I would take eager at the moment. Well, Craig, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is the founder of Brain Game Tennis. You can find more at www.braingametennis.com. He's recognized as one of the world's leader in teaching and analyzed tennis, tennis strategy and analytics. Craig, thank you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. My pleasure. Cheers, mate. So this has been one hour of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself and my colleague, Adi Weiner, Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, In abstentia, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen. Uh, Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Moneyball.